thank you so much. Uh, as you can tell, there's many missing today. Uh, some are traveling, some are sick, uh, various purposes and reasons. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, one, uh, for the healing of those people, um, and that the Lord would keep us safe. Um, and then two, that the Lord would speak through me, um, just through his word primarily. Uh, I hope that's what you hear today, that you don't hear me, but you hear ultimately his word. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be present with your church body, your bride, Lord, who you went to the cross for to give your life as a ransom uh, for many. Lord, as we look at the text today and we think upon that, uh, I pray that it, it always stays fresh in our minds. Uh, Lord, I am guilty myself of not thinking of it often enough. But Lord, it is the truth in which we hang our hat on. Uh, it is, Lord, what keeps us going each and every day and that you providentially provide for us and Lord, you have provided a way eternally for us. So may we think outside of the temporary and look to the eternal today. May we look at the cross and see how beautiful it is because of what you accomplish in our place. Lord, Lord, I pray for those who are not with us today, who um, are sick, who are dealing with COVID, um, various types of sicknesses, who are traveling, whose family members may be sick. And Lord, that you would give us healing. You, you would give us the ability to be able to uh, move past this virus soon and it not be a worry and a concern in our lives because we know that we should not fear for we have you. Um, Lord, as we look into your word now, open our hearts and our minds so that we may take it in and learn and trust you more knowing what you've accomplished for us. In your name I pray. Amen. So today's message is really impossible to get away from because the cross is what this book is centered upon. Um, it is at the very foundation of why it is written. Um, so I want you to, to do this first. As you think of the main idea, as we've been kind of building up to this moment in time, um, so in a world of two kingdoms, it's only the cross that can mend the hearts of men and women towards the kingdom of God. It is only the cross that can do that. No other thing, no other ideology, religion, philosophy, no other self-righteousness, no other attempt of your own accord, but only the cross can mend the hearts of men away from the kingdom of man back towards the kingdom of God. And I hope that you pick that up today along with some application that you understand that the cross is pertinent in your life and the life of every person on this planet. Um, whether it is the student who sits beside you in class, uh, whether it is the people that work underneath you or along with you, uh, whether it's your neighbors, your families, and so on and so forth, the cross is the only thing that will save them. So, I want you to imagine a world in which we live today. 
and, and we observe today. I want you to imagine that world. I want what we currently live in, that this is heaven. I want you to think about that for a minute, that this is heaven. Like, this is the best that it gets, right? So we, we kind of go through life. We struggle at the bad times. We enjoy the good times, and we work, right? Ain't that how life goes? We, it's usually how it goes. We suffer through the bad times. We enjoy the good times, and we work. That seems like what we do. Uh, we, we long for those good moments, right? The long weekends, the, the vacations, the holidays, the birthdays, and all the enjoyable aspects of life. And for many of us, those good moments, the, the good things the Lord gives us reflects what eternity will be like with Him. But for billions of people right now across our planet, that is their reality. This is the best it gets. When you look at our world today, this is their reality. This is their heaven. This is the best they will ever know. Think about that. Like, this is the best that they will ever know. They, they will suffer through life. They will enjoy the good moments. They'll work. And then they'll die. And this will be their heaven because what awaits them will be their hell. And I'm just speaking truth today. I, I want you to understand that there's a difference of two kingdoms here. There's a different mindset of, of one kingdom where you live in this world and this is all you will ever know as being your heaven. This is the best we'll ever get. For the believer though, for those who have professed their faith in Christ and trust in Him and are obedient in Him, we have so much more to long to. This is our hell. This, this is the worst that we will come across because we have so much more to look forward to. So this is the best it gets for those people. And why, why I bring this up is because this is kind of what we've been building up to in the book of John. As we kind of have been turning the bend um, in, in the pages of, of the book of John where we see the climax of Christ's life. We've been building up to this very moment. And over the past two weeks, we have looked at two different kingdoms. We talked, Stephen spoke of this. The kingdom of God where God sovereignly rules and the kingdom of man where we determine what our truth will be. We remember this last week with Pilate, right? Pilate says, what is truth? That is our world in which we live. People ask that question all the time. What is truth? Jesus has already defined it for him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man composed to the Father except by me. So we are building up to this point, knowing this. Um, and yet, what we do know as believers, there is only one true kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. Despite what the rest of humanity may think, what your neighbors may think, what those that lost around you may think, that there is only one truth, and that is the kingdom of God. Two days ago, uh, Josiah asked me, uh, my son, he's not here with us today, but he asked me, what was your least favorite thing in the world, Dad? And I said, well, son, it's sin, of course. Sometimes I have to write that right answer, right? Um, 
I was like, I just hate sin, hate the fact that it continues to persist in our own lives. I hate the fact that I, I look out into a world that's full of it. And of course, he's like, no, that I wanted something not spiritual. He's like, I want, I want something a little bit more like spiders, snakes, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, I'll go along with this. I told him, I said, I hate ants. Now, I hate spiders, but I hate ants. I absolutely hate cutting the grass and you see these huge ant man, mounds and then they get on you and they bite you and it's just awful, right? I'm talking about nobody likes them. I'm pretty sure ants and mosquitoes come from sin. Um, but that's just the way that we look at the world. We, we tend to think in the sense of defining realities. Um, we do not look at this world in light of spiritual things. See, when I look at sin, I see the implication of it just across all things. It has a rippling effect. So it was a good teaching moment that, okay, yeah, I hate these things. I hate ants, so to say. But I, I hate them because they belong to a world ultimately that was not a part of the original design of what God had purposed it for. And things are out of wax. So everything, my point being, is spiritual. When you think of the physical and what we live and we touch and we see, it ultimately hinges on the fact that the spiritual supersedes it. And everything flows out of it. And because of the sin that we have in our life and in our world, it has implications to it and negative implications at that. So... What we'll be looking at today at the pinnacle of history, it resolves this very issue of sin, brings those two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, colliding together. And Jesus and the cross is set at the center of all of human history. I, I hope that you know that, that history does not revolve around you in this time and space. History does not revolve around certain wars that have taken place. It revolves around 2,000 Years ago, a man dying on a cross for our sins. That is what the pinnacle of human history is all about. That's what it was leading up to it, and that is what it will be until the day he returns. And by his death on a cross, I want you to get this, Jesus becomes our gate into the kingdom of God. He becomes our gate. Because you see, on your own accord, in your own doing, there is no gate. There is no way, no mechanism for which it comes by that you can enter into God's very presence. If you remember back to John 10, when the Pastor Stephen preached through it, verses 7 through 10 say this, Very, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Christ... On the cross is our gate. May we never forget that truth. I hope you understand that that is the gateway into which we have a relationship with the Father. 
And there is no other gate that can be found. But it is only by that gate, by Christ, that we can enter into knowing the Father. Being reconciled back to Him. So when we think of the cross in our minds, may it never grow old. I, I am constantly guilty of this because we go through life, right? I'm talking about we're working and we're doing activities and all these types of things. And, and the cross is somewhere left back on Sunday mornings when we sung about it last or when we heard about it last. And we don't think about it each and every day. May it never grow old in our minds. I hope you didn't come in this morning and think, oh no, another sermon on the cross. Because I hope what it does to you is that it grows more and more beautiful in your life each and every day. As you realize that an innocent man who was God and man went to the cross and he gave his life for you. He had no sin you did, and he paid your ransom. May it never grow old. May it always be beautiful. Yes, it is an instrument of death. It is ugly and hideous, but it may it be beautiful to the believer and gracious every time that you look at it, understanding more and more that, God, I deserved that death, not Jesus. May it become more beautiful and more gracious each time you think of it, each time you hear it. Never grow tired of hearing about the cross. We, sh- we do preach it every Sunday here, I believe, but I think we should be able to preach this text every Sunday and it look all the more beautiful to you. It's important that we hear it often we reflect on it often. Get that? Not just hearing it, reflecting on it, thinking on it, meditating on it daily. We don't do a good job of that, church. I'm guilty with you. Some of you may do it well. But we should do it better. So let me ask you this. If you'll stand with her, we're going to read the text real quick. We're going to work through this. It is going to be John chapter 19. If you're not there yet, I'll let you get there. We're going to start really at the very end of 16 on into 17. If you remember this, Pilate from last week had delivered him over to be crucified. So it picks up. So they took Jesus. And he, when he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote, an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write that, the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. Going back to the Old Testament, it said, This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldier did these things, but standing by the cross, Jesus, by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Now may be seated. So as we kind of work through this and we look at this passage, I just kind of want to point out a few things. Um, and this first point being that the bearing the cross reveals Christ in the place of the sinner, right? I think we all get that. We've heard it time and time again. But I'm not even talking about getting to the point of the actual cross. I'm talking about bearing the cross, the beam that Jesus was to, to bear, where it says in Verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross. And I want you to think on that for a minute and just the importance of that moment, the, the heaviness, the weight of that moment of Jesus bearing his own cross as if he deserved it. The, you have to recognize the heaviness of the moment. I think when we read a narrative like this, we just kind of flow through it, right? We just kind of read it for what it is, and we're not taking much away from it. It's kind of like, okay, but Jesus is getting to the cross, and he's bearing it, and we know that ultimately he's not able to carry it himself. He ends up having the help um, of Joseph. So, but I want you to think about Jesus bearing his own cross he was beaten and flogged, right? We know that before. We're already told that he had been beaten and flogged by the Romans. Um, his, his back's wide open. He, he's bleeding, sweating. And a lot of times, as Stephen said last week, you were lucky if you ever made it to the actual cross because death could have happened at the beating. So here it is, is that Jesus has been beaten and flogged, pouring sweat and tears, or tears, I'm sorry, sweat and blood. And think about it, he's treated like a criminal. He's being treated like a criminal. So if you remember history, if you think about, you go back in history and you think about like all the things that happened, like the French Revolution and all these different things, right? Where there's public executions that happen. And you think about the crowds that kind of stand around and come, and maybe it's the, you know, the bells ringing, or maybe it's a specific hour of the day that this execution or executions would happen. The crowds would go, and it was like live entertainment. People would enjoy it. They would cheer it on. Um, they would scoff and make fun of. And here it is: is that Jesus, our Jesus, is been beaten and bloodied. And he's got to carry his own crossbeam in our place. So when you think about that, he's treated like a criminal. What has he done? He's done nothing. 
who've been falsely accused, what for? For our sake. See, it's humiliating. For anyone who went through this, just like Jesus, other criminals, they were guilty of their crime. They deserved what they were going to get. The crowd knew it. But at the same time, the same crowd who had yelled, crucify him, knew also that it wasn't true that this man was deserving of his death. But at no point in time does Jesus call it off. You remember legions of angels, they were at his call. Here he is. He's been brutalized, beaten. And he's taken his own cross for me and you. He's placing it on his back, on his shoulders, to begin to carry it. And he's enduring the guilt and the shame that we should have had. See, he suffered humiliation so that we did not have to. He suffered in our place. I don't think we understand that and grasp the the depth of what Jesus is going through in that moment in time, even before he gets to the cross. But in that moment when he is taking the cross beam and he's placing on his back, his back's ripped open and he is starting to carry the cross with everybody there on looking at him as if he is the criminal in this case and he's guilty when it should have been me and you. See, he knew this, uh, Christ did. He knew that he was the only gate out of man's kingdom into his. He knew that. That the only chance that man had was through the gate that he was offering. So why did he continue on? Because he knew it was the only chance that me and you had. You should love Jesus more and more just for that simple sake alone. That he became the only gate for you through that cross. So in doing so, I don't have these on your paper today, but you can write them down. He became our sin that we may pass through the gate. He did. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, in him we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't know sin. He never sinned like me and you do daily that we struggle with. He was tempted by it. He was just like a man. But guess what? He chose not to sin. He desired God more. He was the perfect Adam. For the first Adam had failed. The second Adam he was. And in that, he became our sin so that we may take upon his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he looks at Christ, a pure sacrifice, one who stands in our place. See, by Christ's propitiation, his willingness to take upon the wrath of God, we became righteous through him. Everything that you deserve for eternity on, for all of eternity, 
Not just a short period, not, not a short time. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, we deserve to cross. What we mean by that when we make that statement is we deserve the wrath of God that befell upon Jesus at the cross for all of eternity. That is what Christ has came and saved us for, uh, from. See, by carrying the cross beam, he was admitting a guilt that was not his own. So when people looked at him, you know, most criminals you look at and you're like, that person's guilty, they deserved it. And they looked at Christ, he didn't deserve it. But he's bearing the guilt of us. Second thing, he became cursed for us so that we no longer are cursed. So the first thing, he became our sin so that we may pass through the gate. He also became our sin so that we are no longer a curse. This is out of Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. Listen to this. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, it's all of us, right? We would agree. We've committed crimes against God. And he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You said, for a hangman is cursed by God. See, the Jews understood this to be true. They knew. Galatians 3.13, you say, well, that was for the Jews in the Old Testament. Now, listen to this. It says, as Paul writes to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Paul goes back to Deuteronomy and he takes it and he puts it on the life of Christ. And he said, Jesus was cursed. He became cursed. See, by the law, we are cursed because we can't keep the law, right? Remember what he tells the rich man? You can't keep it. So we're all under the law and the condemnation of the law because we cannot keep the law. Put up the Ten Commandments in your house and see how well you do throughout the day, throughout the week. You can't keep, them up, keep up with them. You condemn yourself by trying. See, we can't keep the law and it becomes a curse to us the very thing that we often strive to keep is the very thing that we are cursed by because in our kingdom, we are bent towards sin. We are. In our kingdom, we are bent towards sin. It tells us this. It tells us because we are of Adam that we are in Adam as well through his sin. That his sin comes to, through us, into us, and we are bent towards sin. That is our desire. And we can't keep the law. And our own self-righteousness can't act as a gate for us. I hope you caught the title today. But the, it can't act as a gate for us. Our own self-righteousness. So because the law becomes a curse for us, we cannot act as our own gate. We can't go to God and say, hey, I've done this. We have to rely on Christ. Not only does Jesus become our curse... So that we are no longer cursed, but he fulfills the worst type of death by dying on a tree. 
So not only does he become our curse so that we are no longer cursed, but he feels the worst type of death dying on a tree. See, the, the Jews did not kill people this way traditionally. If you look back, they stoned people. That was what God had told them to do. Hey, they stoned people. But if a person was hung on a tree, if we go back to Deuteronomy, it says that person, they were really condemned. They were cursed. They, they were looked upon as cursed. So when the Jews were crying to crucify Jesus, crying out, they understood, no, we don't want this man treated like a Jew. We want him treated like just any other Gentile, someone who deserved to be put to death in a different way. We don't want him put to death by stoning, but we would rather see him put to death by the Roman death, which was putting him on a tree, which meant to them, hey, this man is cursed. He can never be really of God. He cannot be from God. His disciples, maybe they'll quit following him because he's truly a cursed man if we put him on a tree. This ultimately backfires on the Jews. They understood their own law when they cried crucify him. It was because they understood the Old Testament Torah and that by suffering a Roman death that surely his Jewish followers would see him as cursed. Galatians reveals, however, that did not only that only Jesus did not overcome the cross and the curse for us, but also the method of the curse. Jesus began the process of redeeming all things from the curse in the garden. Right? You remember that? What happens? Adam and Eve's sin, curse, falls on the people. We are sinners from that point forward. This shows us the importance of the language in the Bible, and we often see it in the Old Testament to point us towards a resolution in the New Testament. It's amazing when you read the Old Testament. That's why it's so important and so rich and got so much good information in it and points us towards God because when we go over to the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of it. It's good. It's important to recognize that language of cursing the Old Testament and seeing Jesus as... Um, Fulfilling that curse. See, he took on the burden of the cross to carry all of our burdens. So, he took on the burden of the cross to carry all our burdens. So, I hope you know that. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, think about Jesus taking upon the burden of the cross, and he's telling us pretty much all you, all of you who are heavy laden, burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. It says, take my yoke upon you and, I'll, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is this not why Christ came? The very next section after that, Jesus calls himself the, he is the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. How do we rest in him? Because we rest in his accomplished work on the cross. That's how we rest. Not striving towards the law any longer, which is a curse towards us and in us, but because that Christ himself, in giving his life and carrying the cross, ultimately carries our burdens along with it. 
that takes that upon him. See, Jesus carried the burden of the cross, and with that, he carried the burden of our sin, our shame, our guilt, our pain, and our sufferings. He carried it all. Listen to me, there is nothing that Jesus did not accomplish for those who believe in him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He accomplished it all. That's why he invites you, come, put those burdens upon me. Primarily the spiritual burden of sin. Put it upon me, rest. Know that I've taken care of this. We are the rest in him. There is nothing that he hasn't accomplished for you. It reminds me of the garden, right? When Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He goes out, sheds blood, provides them clothing. Because of what? Their guilt and shame. They run off. They know their eyes have been opened. But we see here Jesus permanently shedding his blood. As a covering for us in our sins. The next thing we see in this passage is bearing the title that's given to him. That Pilate puts above him as king of the Jews. Reveals Christ as king. It's prophesied. It's shown to us. So listen in Luke 1, 32-33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see that? There will be no end. His kingdom will last forever. So, if we go back to Isaiah 9, 1-7... through 7, we tend to hear this more around Christmas time, but I want you to listen. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the waves of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Listen to this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke, this is where it gets, ties back into the New Testament. Listen to the language. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. And here we go. For as a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders. You know that? Not a beam any longer rests on his shoulders. Authority rests on his shoulders. Christ has the authority. It says authority rests on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time onward 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, it wasn't the Jews who wanted this sign, right? If we go back to the text, they told Pilate, no, no, don't put that. Put what he claimed. Don't put, you know, this is like a factual statement. And Pilate pretty much told him, get over it. It's what I put. And so when you think of that, see the irony in it. They, they found it insulting, right? That he would be considered king of the Jews. Because their mind automatically is going back to the Old Testament. What that kingdom meant. What that kingship was. And it wasn't what they had anticipated. It's not what they wanted. That's why they wanted him crucified. And they asked Pilate to take it down. And the irony is found in God's sovereignty, right? To use a pagan ruler, such as Pilate, to display the truth. The man who said, what is truth? Here he is displaying the very truth of who Jesus was. So much irony in that. And says, and he's displaying the truth of the prophecy found in the Old Testament. I just read you from Isaiah, along with the birth proclamations of the angels that I read you out of Luke. In that moment, God was speaking to Israel that the king had come. That Jesus was their king. Not their will, not even Pilate's will, but ultimately God's sovereignty put that sign above Jesus that Jesus was the king of the Jews and Jesus is the king forevermore. And the final thing, bearing the sorrow of his mother, Christ reveals his deep love for people. This was probably my favorite part of the text because think about your mom. You know, maybe she's no longer with us, but um, Jesus in his humanity, right? And he's, he's God in the flesh. He had been with his mother for 33 years. And here he is, he's, He's on the cross. He's suffering. And I'm not trying to sensationalize this. I'm just trying to use scientific fact of what he was going through because I think what we do a lot of times is we just think, okay, well, he's hanging on the cross. It's important to us. We know that there was three nails through his hands, some believe through his wrist, and then his feet would have been crossed over with a nail through it. So the, the pain and the agony there, uh, on top of what I'd already explained, he had went through back at his beatings with it, the weight of his body shifting downward with gravity pulling it, with the ligaments in his arms and those in his feet and just the pain and the agony. And, but his body began to shut down. His organs began to shut down. His heart rate increasing and going up he was dry at the mouth dehydrated he was suffering and if you remember it's not in this gospel but it said to make sure he was dead they rammed a spear through his side and what came out fluid why because Jesus had practically drowned as he was on the cross. It wasn't the pain of the nails. It was the fact that 
his organs shut down. His body suffered in every possible way. And as his heart was racing, it was creating fluid in his lungs and it was building up and he couldn't breathe. But yet, he takes this moment in time to look down at his very own mother. If you remember, I thank Micah and Melissa for reading that wonderful passage. When she had found out she was pregnant with Jesus. And she's glorifying God. Understanding that Jesus is going to be the Savior. Not knowing what that meant for her as she stood at the foot of the cross. Not until three days later, which we'll get to. But standing at the foot of the cross watching her son. As he's probably gurgling. Trying to speak. And as we read these narratives, we just kind of read through them. We're just like, oh, Jesus is up there. He's speaking, right? Like, just normally. But he's dry mouthed. He's got fluid building up in his lungs. He's suffering. And who does he care about? He cares about, one, all of those who would be saved. He endures the cross. But yet, he looks at his own mother. And he tells John... That's who it's speaking of here. He says, take her to your house. And it's interesting because Jesus talks a lot about family throughout the Gospels, about how family is more than DNA and it's more than blood, but family is spiritual. That it is, When we become um, believers, the people you see around you are more your family than those who are blood. That's what the scriptures teach us. And that's what Jesus is teaching this moment as he's suffering, wanting to make sure his mother is taken care of. John, take her back with you. She is now your mother as well, and he is now your son as well, because that's what the kingdom of God does. It brings people together. It makes us a family. It brings unity in the body of all who believe. You know, I think of the wedding at Cana. I think it's John chapter 2 we went through. And remember, Mary is telling Jesus kind of what to do. And Jesus says, my time hasn't come. And I, I just wonder in her mind did she realize this is what he was speaking of. To see what he had to endure to go through. For him to still love her so much and to love his disciples and all those whom he would save to stay there and to suffer. See, we see Jesus' humanity and divinity on full display. Because Jesus not only saw this in terms of his biological family, but all those who would be his spiritual family. It goes back to the promise of Abraham that through his lineage we would have one that would come. And that all people would come together as a spiritual family. That's why he was able to in Mark 3.35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. See, Jesus bore the cross that we were not bound to this kingdom. But it opens the gate to God's kingdom. So... Here's something for you to think about. Have you trusted Christ with that? 
Is he your gate? Are you leaning on something else? Is he the gate by which you enter? Or are you leaning on another gate that's not open? It can't be open. That is not accessible to God the Father. I hope you find peace and hope, beauty and joy and grace in the cross and all that he went through so that we may, these are some things for you to take away, carry your cross daily. Ain't that what he tells us to do over in Luke 14? If you go back and look, he says, you know, those who follow me will carry their, the cross. They will carry the burden of the cross. In our own lives, we have to carry our cross. So that we may also cling to the lordship of our king. Now you see Jesus as king on that cross. Because now, yes, he was once on a cross. But now he rules and he reigns at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Never ceasing. And then so that we may love others because he first loved us. May we look at those around us, lost or saved, and love as First John 4 says. We may love that way. That we may love in the fact, despite you know, Jesus there on the cross, people mocking, spitting, laughing, telling him, if you truly are who you say you are, come down from there. Jesus had a greater eternal purpose in mind, not a temporal purpose. That's how much he even loved those people. May we love in the same way. So may the cross point you to God's love for the unsaved and challenge you to live in obedience. I want to read this quote and we're going to finish up. This is by J.C. Ryle. It says, To wear material crosses as an ornament, to place material crosses on churches and tombs, all this is cheap and easy work and entails no trouble. But to have Christ's cross in our hearts, to carry Christ's cross in our daily walk, to know the fellowship of His sufferings, to be made comfortable to His death, to have crucified affections and live crucified lives. All this needs self-denial. And Christians of this stamp are few and far between. So may we not be those type of Christians who just look at it as an ornament to wear around our necks or something to put on our cars or a t-shirt to wear, but that it may be a saturated in our very hearts so that as I said early in the sermon that it becomes a daily thing that we think upon that we do a better job of it helping us to love others and be in obedience to Christ himself let's go to the Lord in prayer Father thank you uh, for today the opportunity to be in this place with this group of people to worship you um, Lord, when we look at the cross, it, it is such a heavy topic. One that 
either we read right over sometimes or one that we don't give much thought to or we only think it's of it at certain points in the year. But may it be true that we find the riches of your word and of this moment in history and see it as the most beautiful thing that has happened throughout the history of the world. Lord, I plead for so many to come to know that truth that you, Jesus, are the gate. And that that gate is only accessible not by man's kingdom, but by you, Jesus, and your cross so that we may enter it and enter eternity for a life that was meant for us. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. We're so undeserving of. May we worship you now. In your name I pray. Amen.